si no das la cara a tus problemas hipotecarios, este sonido será el más horrible del mundo. Quiere decir que estás atrasado en tus pagos. Quiere decir que tienes poco tiempo. Quiere decir que otra llamada y estarás más cerca de perder tu hogar. Afortunadamente hay esperanza. Si necesitas ayuda y consejos, llama al 1-888-995-HOPE. 1-888-995-4693. Porque hacer nada es peor que no hacer nada. Este mensaje ha sido traído a ustedes por cortesía de la Sociedad Navajo y el Concilio de Publicidad. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the great robot wars. And Peter Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Are you a video gamer looking to give back? Donate Games can help. Send in your used video games to the Donate Games online store, where games are resold to help fund research for orphan diseases afflicting children around the world. Donate Games save lives. It's that easy. To play your part, visit www.donategames.org. The Psychology Student Association is an organization dedicated to its members. Our goal at the Psychology Student Association is to serve as a resource for members to network, make new friends, and explore their passion for psychology. We seek to help undergraduate students learn about grad school, careers, and research opportunities related to psychology. If you're a psych major, minor, or just interested in learning more about psychology, check out our website at clubs.uci.edu slash psychsa for more details on meeting times and upcoming events. Again, that's clubs.uci.edu slash p-s-y-c-h-s-a. You're listening to Real People of Orange County, and I'm your host, Kimberly Martin. This show is a fun and informative look inside the lives of Orange County's best and brightest. These are people who serve their community in a meaningful capacity on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Well, good afternoon. It is fabulous to be here in the studio with you today on this beautiful winter day. I love winter in California. We're so lucky here. We really are. But um, hey, you know, I don't know if you remember from last week, but we're continuing our series on human trafficking. I know, heavy topic, but hey, let's all uh, brave the new year with, you know, a new sense of awareness and you know, some special attention to making a difference in somebody's lives if we're able to, if we're able to do that for um, our community and our community at large. But before I get into today's topic, I wanted to mention that I've been contacted by the Dean of Social Sciences over in Anthropology and Law. He's a professor here at UCI. And really interesting, interesting thing coming up uh, here at the end of the month. Actually, uh, January 22nd is going to be the, um, the Irvine Uh, business outlook in 2016. So we are going to interview uh, 
Bill Marr, and he is our very own UCI uh, Dean of Social Service, Social Sciences. So he's been asked, it's, it's basically the Business and Commerce Outlook Forum, the Irvine Chamber of Commerce Business Outlook Forum that they hold, and he's going to be a keynote speaker along with uh, Stuart Varney, an anchor for a business network um, and business show, Fox News anchor uh, business show, the Stuart Varney show. And um, basically what's going to happen is we're going to have Bill Maher in here in the next, um, in the next week. We're going to pre-record a show so you can hear about it. But his participation in the redevelopment of the new $10 bill, the redesign, is going to be kind of an interesting insight that I think we can have from one of our very own. We're going to gain some insights in um, in his role in this historic redesign. They are planning to feature a woman, and we're going to see how uh, technology is changing the future of money. So very exciting topic upcoming that I'm happy to share with you. But for now, I'm delighted to have Dr. Sandra Morgan back in the studio with me. And she just, you know, I don't know, Dr. Morgan, take a minute, if you would. She is the executive director for the Global Center for Women and Justice. Take a minute, if you would. And, uh, you know, you have a lovely radio voice. Tell us a little bit about the podcasting you've been doing. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm, I am a little embarrassed because today my voice is just not really quite where it's supposed to be. I think lots of people are dealing with those kinds of issues with colds going around, right? I, th- I don't know. It might be enhancing your radio presence oh, a little bit. Oh, there you go. Okay. <laughs> well, we've been doing um, the Ending Human Trafficking podcast for a little over four years, and we have 115 episodes. We record twice a month. We find some of the most expert voices that we can. We find survivors to tell their stories. It's a 30-minute podcast to help the everyday person come up to speed to understand the issues. Our mantra is study the issues, be a voice, make a difference. If you don't understand what's going on, you might actually do something that could um, be act- actually cause harm. So our podcast was recommended by the Clearinghouse for the Administration of Family and Youth Services as a quick way to get up to speed on human trafficking. And we invite people to check it out. You can search it on iTunes and subscribe or Stitcher or whatever your favorite app is for podcasts. Okay. All right. Very cool. Well, we're big fans into the podcasting arena here at KUCI. Uh, not sure if it's well known or not, but we like to mention it often that you can podcast our talk shows after they air. And we all have websites. We set them up. We host them on our KUCI.org website. You can go to archives and listen to the shows that have aired. We've got a really nice uh, selection of content up there on the airwaves. So podcasting, I don't know, it's my favorite thing. I don't go to bed without a podcast. What about you? Oh, I love podcasts because I get to choose when I listen to it. Right. And uh, it's better than um, walking the dog with just my neighborhood um, noise. We had raccoons next door this morning and the dogs were all barking, but I have my earphones on and listening to a podcast. You had your podcast on. And I have different podcasts I listen to at night versus ones that I'll listen to in the morning. Like I try not to listen to anything too motivational in the middle of the night when I'm trying to sleep. Uh, I I listen to really dry subject matters. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing that we host here at KUCI is going to be dry enough to listen at night. But No, (laughs) because this subject today is definitely something really disturbing and not something for 
for evening consumption. No, no, no. But I did tell for our regular listeners, Marie Stone once that I listened to her podcast at night because her voice is soothing and she didn't know how to take it. Ooh, oh. is that creepy or is that, uh-huh. is, am I boring? What is that? <laughs> anyway, but um, so, okay, well on to today's topic because this is a big one and we got a little preempted last time. We want to devote as much time as we can to the topic. You um, you left here with your mind racing. So let's talk about the things that we wanted to make sure we got covered today. And then we'll talk about our surprise guest as, as soon as he gets here. Okay, that sounds good. Uh, well, as we mentioned last week, this month is by Presidential Proclamation, National Slavery and Human Trafficking Prevention Month. And that's a significant change from the early days when we did awareness events. And the the movement has really progressed to recognize that engagement, community engagement is necessary. Awareness is not enough. You can be aware that there's a fire burning over a mile from the freeway, but you don't get off the freeway and go try to do something. Uh, You're just aware. But with community engagement, you want to actually find out what you can do. And the reason why I like the national focus on prevention is because that is something every single person can be involved in. Our special guest that's coming uh, on his way here, his role in fighting human trafficking is very unique, a specific skill set and requirements legally. However, you and I, we can do things in prevention that are just making lifestyle changes. There's um, a big emphasis this year with the Department of Labor on identifying products that are made by child and slave labor internationally, but they're on your shelves, Kimberly. Oh, geez. Let's talk a little bit about that because that, that brings it really close to home. Well, and this idea that I can make a choice that will change a child's life in another country on another continent is... Um, an important concept for us as socially responsible consumers. And and you can't become um, totally um, legalistic about, oh, I have to only buy when I know 100%. It's very difficult to find products that you can validate as being 100% no slave labor. For instance, uh, if, if you want to buy a new pair of um, tennis shoes, although my assistant that was doing research for me told me no. Professor, those are athletic shoes. Ah. So I'm, I've got to update my terminology. I don't know. I think I was where you are, too. So Okay, good, good. And, and um, finding a product where they've been able to source uh, all of the components. Think about what goes into a pair of athletic wear. Um, there's canvas that's made from cotton. You have cotton fields where many, many times children are, are child's labor, child slaves, and not going to school. So you're not only, um, they're being used as free labor, and they're not compensated, but a child isn't getting an education. So I can, I can check, I can audit that source of the product, that part. But the pop metal that goes into the little eyelets so that you can thread your, your um, uh, shoestrings, that is going to be from recycled. You don't know where that metal came from. Unlike 
as you mentioned last week, the um, coltan from um, often the Congo in mines where children and men and women are slaves. So it is a it is a choice that we make um, trying to be as informed as we possibly can. In California, we can actually cite the Supply Chain Transparency Act and ask the businesses that we purchase products from to validate where their sources came from. And a lot of those companies are putting those things online now. They're making themselves more transparent just so that we know, um, and probably some that aren't unless they're being forced to. And the Department of Labor is doing its part. They are investigating routes of products that are coming into being imported in the U.S. So they have, I think, 123 products from 74 countries. And from things like um, tea and coffee, um, fruit and produce that you get out of season, and we really enjoy that ability in our markets here, but... um, We don't know how those products are being brought to our marketplace. Are there any products in particular that you can name that would really surprise somebody? Blueberries. Oh. I went went to Argentina. I've been there a couple of times doing training. And when I did local country study investigation and found out that children and forced labor adults were harvesting the blueberries that I could buy in the dead of winter here, um, it kind of took away my enjoyment of those products. Oh, yeah. So you were you able to see that firsthand when you were um, there? I didn't go to the blueberry fields. I just talked to um, some of the my human trafficking colleagues there and learn more about it. I also learned that um, in in other countries, um, surrounding countries become sources for recruiting slave labor. And that kind of brings up the push and pull aspect of, of slavery. When you are in a country where there are no options, the economy doesn't support jobs, Um, And someone comes and says, we have a job for you in a factory. And that happened in Bolivia. Um, And hundreds of workers were recruited for textile factories in in Argentina. And when that happened, their whole families relocated and then discovered that they weren't going to get paid a fair wage. And they were living in seriously substandard housing. And hundreds of them were were completely um, surprised and then powerless to change. They owed debts. There were all kinds of um, issues with coercion, the threats to keep you compliant. And even when the case was first discovered and they identified 1,200 victims, it took a couple years before justice was served. And the legal processes are getting better, but it's still very challenging because that contributes to a local economy. And when you free those people and they, they need to be paid a fair wage, they don't have legal documents. You can imagine the quagmire of helping them and at the same time um, keeping the community stabilized. There's so many challenges with this. It seems overwhelming. And how how do you, as as a professional that has devoted your life to this, not just your profession, but your life, 
to tackling this issue. Where do you take comfort in how you're able to make strides? That is such a great question. I have been, um, January, because it's prevention month, I tell my team that it's kind of a, a sprint for me. But the rest of the year, it's a marathon, and I have to pace myself and make sure that I take um, time to, to listen to the success stories to be re-energized. And that is one of my delights. When I hear a success story, that makes it all worthwhile. Because if even one person um, is a slave, if one person does not have the dignity that we expect, especially here in America, um, then I still have a mission. I still have to keep moving forward. So true. What... What say you to people that might want to take up the cause with you, and how might they uh, find their way into helping you and the many people like you in this in this field of, of really um, service? One of the things that you can do is start with the podcast and listen to some of the community engagement opportunities. We, If you're here in Orange County listening to this, getting involved with our Orange County Human Trafficking Task Force. We have volunteer opportunities, educational opportunities, and it is um, really dependent on how much time and energy that you have in the, the model of anti-trafficking, of prevention, protection, prosecution, and partnership. That partnership is really identified by how much expertise and resources you bring to the table. And then you do what you are really good at. I've talked to professional groups, dentists, um, and they've agreed to provide pro bono services for some of our our victims, our clients. And then I go someplace else and I find um, uh, hairdressers who would like to give um, victims um, a complete new look. And then there's people who are willing to go out into the community, put posters up in libraries, take information packets to walk-in healthcare clinics, which is a real need for the healthcare providers to be more aware and understand that they might see a victim. So if you're just tuning in, I have the delight to have uh, Sandra Morgan, Dr. Sandra Morgan, she is the executive director for the Global Center for Women and Justice at Vanguard University, and she was a pediatric nurse and is devoting her time and her profession to um, ex- exploitation of humans. Human trafficking is our topic for the month of January. Uh, by proclamation from the president, we are learning more about this and making it a point as a community and as a country to eradicate this here and uh, to do what we can to help it abroad. Uh, we are also pleased to be joined today by Sergeant Juan Rivelis. Yes. And, um, and uh, Sergeant just <clears throat> just walked into the studio. He, um, I don't know, it would, have, it would kind of excite me if you had to put a siren on to get to KUCI live radio show yeah. uh, to get here fast. <laughs> he got stuck in some traffic. I don't, I don't know, but he is the sergeant and, um, for Orange County's Human Trafficking Task Force. And so he's here to talk to us about that. Did you have to use a siren to get here on time? Uh, pretty close to it. But, uh, <laughs> I got here with, uh, pretty quick, you would say. Yes, yeah, that's Sandra. right. You <laughs> did. Yeah, g- given from where you were coming from, boy, that was impressive. <laughs> rear, rear, all the way yeah. out of KUCI. So, well, thank you for being here. 
so Sergeant, tell us tell us a little bit about the role that you play in the arena of human trafficking. And then I really want to try to bring this home for the listeners during this series so that we can all become really part of your arsenal to help fight this situation, but we can't do it unless we know what to look for and what some of the challenges that you're facing in what you do. Well, oddly enough, my delay getting here is because we were in the middle of something. A patrol officer made a car stop, and because more training has gotten out and awareness to patrol officers, it wasn't just a car stop for him. What we determined was that he had two males that turned out to be the pimps, having two females that they were trafficking here in Orange County. That's the reality. That's why I'm late every day that is happening here. So uh, as far as obstacles are concerned is the biggest one is really changing the mindset of a lot of different groups within society to change from what we used to see them as pimps and hoes. Sorry to say that, but that's what we all thought are prostitutes to human traffickers and victims. So at some point, we thought that an individual in this situation chose to be there. Uh, and and now we're really finding that it's just not that way, is it? It. Uh, and know, I'm talking uh, about the victims. The, the sure, let's, let's go with the victims. You would say that because nothing's ever as clear as we would always like it to be. There is people out there that by decisions as adults, they decided this was, uh, I think, a bad choice, but they saw this as their only choice. However... In our experience, in the majority, the vast majority that we run across is that they were actually forced into the lifestyle to being victimized. So when I talk about a, a shift in attitude and a paradigm shift that actually law enforcement is going through, we would look back and interview an adult of 25 years old, make contact with her on the street, and she would say, yes, I am here. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I chose to do this, and I'm by myself, and no one else has forced me to do this. In our mind... She's an adult, she's doing this, and we would enforce the law, the anti-prostitution laws. What we know now, when you're talking to that adult and you really sit and talk to her and use a victim-centered approach in discussing the situation with her, and when her their stories, and when I say her, their stories start off as, I ran away at 13, at 14 this happened to me. You realize that you're talking to someone chronologically 25 years old, but has matured very little in a law in that time period, a decade, because that's this is all they know. They've been controlled by a trafficker for years. And so having that perspective allows us to conduct that investigation in an entirely different way that hopefully nets us the trafficker, which is what our goal is. Okay. So what um what leads somebody into trafficking? other than the obvious financial remuneration, but what, what are some of the components of an individual that, that, I mean, are we looking at a personality profile? Are we looking at an economic profile, all of the above? It, um, you know, personality profile, when you talk about that, it all depends on what, um, what phase of human trafficking we are looking at. It stems from street prostitution to illegal massage parlors, residential brothels, you name it, gentlemen clubs, or adult clubs, it runs a spectrum. Therefore, they, they, the profile of who you're looking for is different. You okay. know, they all seem to find their niche. It is purely for selfish financial gain purposes. Their entire purpose is to make money, and they have chosen to enslave someone and sell them into the sex trade as their way they're going to make money. Um, 
when you take that to the next step, I, I can't think of anything that you can you would find. Very few things. I shouldn't say that being in law enforcement. There are very few things that really cross that moral line that you made a decision. This is be, besides the illegality of it. You made a decision that you are going to own someone and exploit them for your own purposes. So one of the interviews we did here over a year ago, um, somebody brought in the perspective that because the law enforcement is getting so good at preventing uh, uh, trafficking of drugs and arms that it's easier to run girls than it is to run you know, some of these other illegal trades. Is there some truth to that? There's, there is some truth to that, and because when it's not uh, we are good at it, it's just the focus that was being paid attention to. Mm. And so what you would have usually in small uh, police departments, you would have their special enforcement unit, whatever they would decide to call, and that unit would have to concentrate on vice issues and drug issues. Well, uh, in police cultures, most of them would concentrate on drug issues because, remember, we look back decades, what was our thought? She's there. She's an adult, consenting adults. Who is, where is the victim there? So that was part of our philosophy. And so, therefore, they would concentrate on drugs. As we, I'll, I'll say it several times, it's law enforcement. The rest of society is going through this paradigm shift, and you realize, wait a minute, those are victims. When you really see it for what it is, everything changes. So, therefore, mm -hmm. your priority changes from drugs. And then we also follow the law. You know, recently, California decided to make misdemeanors a lot of um, uh, drug charges. So regardless of what we think as law enforcement officers, society speaks to us. We follow a lot of what that is. At the same time, they're increasing the penalties for human trafficking. So what is society telling us? We, the ones that enforce the laws that they pass, is we want you to focus on this more as well. That's the big picture. And then you get into the finer details as to the actual, um, you know, the evilness of it. That's such an important point, what he just brought up there. And and I think that probably, in terms of the listener, I'm always thinking of the listener, the helpless listener sitting there w getting this heavy load that we're bringing to them and what they can do. But y y what you've described is a paradigm shift, which isn't easily done, even in a country that's interested in and compassionate. But you've described a paradigm shift that was brought about through um, civic duty of voting and uh, speaking to our government officials. I'm thinking of all of those things that uh, we can do as, as everyday citizens to put forth and to change the emphasis on, on which how you all spend the resources of your time and um, you know of the money budgeted to fight crime. So that's pretty, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah, and, and one of the things um, Juan, Sergeant Ravella said was um, that this is a moral issue, and yet at the same time, as we discussed earlier, this is about dignity and human rights of the individual person. So if we, if we even move away, because there, there are discussions that sort of um, distract us from this, this basic um, issue of you're a human being, and those discussions are whether prostitution should be legal, if is there choice, is this coercion. Outside of all of those things, the basic issue of human rights, p people have different lines for what morality is. I happen to be 
on exactly the same side of that line with Sergeant Rebellis. But we can't argue against our basic human rights. And then, because you know, I always bring my nursing background into this, this is a public health issue as well for lots of different reasons. And maybe um, in the next couple of weeks, we can talk more about the role of the healthcare provider. Right, right, because that's such an important uh, entry point with which you have used to emphasize in your career to train that healthcare provider. Mm -hmm. So while we have Sergeant Rebellis here, um, we're going to use your time wisely. So if you're just tuning in, this is Real People OC, and I am your host, Kimberly Martin. And each and every week, we bring people in from our community to tell you a little bit about what we're, hey, what we're doing out there. And so we have chosen January. Well, we didn't choose it. The president chose it, <laughs> the president of the United States, to focus on human trafficking uh, awareness in our communities. And so we're, we're honoring that choice here at KUCI by um, dedicating my show to a month-long in-depth look at human trafficking. I, I really want to tailor the discussion to what's happening in Orange County. I think it's more helpful to people to find local touch points. Um, and I also want the listeners to feel like they can be a part of this uh, problem, that solving the problem as well, too. So, uh, Sergeant Ravellis, will you talk to us a little bit about what the current climate is and what types of trafficking we see here in Orange County and also how... Um, an astute person could pay attention and help you guys out by increasing your manpower just by watching? One of the uh, biggest things for us that we've done in Orange County over the past, I would say, decade was to bring the, uh, the awareness through education of what actually human trafficking is and what it looks like. Because left to what, uh, you know, we think everybody knows it, they would be left with what they see in the movies and if they see it on the street the prostitution. That was it. That's what we would look at. However, here in Orange County, as I briefly mentioned earlier, it goes from that to street. And unfortunately, like everything else, because of the internet, a lot of it has, has uh, uh, transferred over to the internet. So for example, uh, right now, if we were to look at a certain website, and there's plenty of these, but this certain website right now would probably, uh, probably have in the area of 200 advertisements, 200 people advertising uh, to sell sex on this one website here in Orange County. If we were to see that, like, on the streets, that many people spread throughout the, the, the county in certain, in certain streets that they're out there, we would be amazed by it and demand that they would something be done about it. Be but because it's on the Internet, and I just mentioned one website, you can count 10 other ones that do the same thing. God, that's overwhelming. Exactly. And, and because, because we don't see it, you know, we seem to think that it's not here. So that's the first part. We absolutely have an issue with here in Orange County. And it's from a North County city down to down here in Irvine. I mean, I drove by some buildings that we can see we've done some operations there. How many cases have we, have we had here in Orange County? Since uh, 2010 that we started yeah, the task force? since Anaheim. Oh, I could imagine. I was, it's hundreds of, hundreds of cases a year that we would do. Uh, and that's because it was just growing and, and recently the county, the police chiefs uh, began a um, a countywide task force to address, address this problem as a county level as opposed to at a city level. And so I mentioned that I see buildings that we came out here. Any, any of these high-rise uh, hotels <laughs> by the airport, they're going to have it there. These high-rise condo complexes down here in Irvine, they're going to have a portion of it. And what they have here is residential brothels. They won't have the street prostitution that we're looking for. So for the, the observer out there, it's like, you know, and most residents, 
we don't have that problem down here in South County. Well, it is. It just looks different. So can you tell us exactly what it looks like from a casual observer's perspective? Uh, the casual observancy is not going to see this. The awareness comes into what happens is, and this is mostly Asian-dominated, and that's what you're going to see. They will get in a, a condo, two-bedroom, three-bedroom condo in one of these beautiful complexes uh, down here in South County and establish a residential brothel there. The casual observer is not going to see that, but what we know for sure is that the neighbors are going to see it. They have to notice that these people in there, nobody really lives there. They come and work in shifts, and they're going to see that every hour on the hour, there's going to be several men going into this condo. So that's our awareness that you, this is what you're actually seeing. It does exist. Look for it. Report it to management. Report it to local police department. Report it to the Orange County Human Trafficking Task Force. So that's, that's where the awareness, that's not the casual server is going to see it because we're expecting that. That is the resident of that complex that is going to be able to see that. And I say it's Asian-dominated because that's predominantly what you're going to see down here. So you have to be aware of what you are looking for. Okay. So, yeah, I remember a while back being in a neighborhood where there was always, you know, young kids pulling up in the car. They were never there longer than, I don't know, two or three minutes. And um, and then they were gone again. So we're just figuring they were going in and out for drugs. And they, there was some teenager that was doing drugs. And that neighborhood was able to identify what was happening and um and you know call law enforcement and let them become aware and um and you know let somebody know so you're you're thinking of something like that right yeah that's that's the first start those are um uh, whether it's residential brothels in in high rises or whether it's residential brothels in hispanic communities those we all know for sure are occurring and we know for sure that there's witnesses to it it's just in their mind they're not looking for it or as, as in some other communities, it's kind of somewhat accepted, and that's, that shouldn't be the case. So that's part of the awareness, that's part of the education that you take as we are going, and everybody we're talking, the different professions are going through this paradigm shift, so does society at large is going through it. So are we to assume that the women that are in these residential brothels are being kept there against their will and not let free to go explore or um, be a part of their community? Well, let's take, the, let's take the residential brothels, the Asian residential brothels, and how usually a lot of them will start. They will be brought over here under false pretense. You're going to work doing X, and they do not work there because they get them here willingly at times because they're less of an issue. If you bring somebody here willingly, it's supposed to be enforced throughout the process from wherever they're coming from, Vietnam, Korea. Right, so they participate in their documents and, you know, the passports. and Right, and they're willing participants. Once they get here, it is switched on them and says, this is what you're going to do, and then they're forced to do that. Because by that time, there are several issues that are in play. One is you owe us this amount of money because we brought you over here. Two, your family is going to find out that you are doing this, and you don't want them to know that. That's the the, the more benign ones. But then you add the threats to the family back home. So then they're forced into doing that, and it takes them uh, quite a while to pay off what they owe because of the high interest rates. And by the way, we're going to charge you for housing because you are living within the brothel or you're living in that stash house, and we're also going to charge you for food. So it takes them several years to pay what you would think, the amount of money that they're making that would easily pay off in one year. And then what we're finding out and talking to some of them is that by that time, after several years of doing this, that they finally, if they get to that point, that they're finally able to pay off what they owe, 
the left with what else do I know what to do? Mm. I can't go back home. And this is familiar to them now. And this is familiar. And then now the arrangement is probably 50-50. And I'll tell you what we're finding uh, our most difficult cases is exactly those because that I can think of, we have not, and it happens very few, that they actually cooperate with police. Hmm. That is our biggest hurdle in that with that look or that phase of human trafficking. Well, that element of shame against the family is probably a really big motivator for them. Yeah, they, they, and, and they use one or all of the above, whatever it takes for it to work, for them to continue making money for them. Okay, so as a neighbor, you can watch for coming and going that seems unusual for just one person or one family living there. Um, as a, let's say, a landlord, is there something a landlord can do to pay attention to what's happening? Yes. Uh, the biggest part is, like any other uh, type oh. of crimes, it starts with the screening process. Who is actually going to be living there? The reason they pick those large uh, condominium complexes is because it's it's you get lost within the crowd. Yeah. As Imagine if you were to pick a fourplex, mm-hmm. maybe an aplex that the, the manager lives on side. But when you pick these large apartments, very nice as they are, and then, especially if you get one of the condos that's off to the side that somebody can walk in through a side gate instead of in the main gate. So they really look for that. The demographics of the area, the logistics of where they're going to be, that they, they look for that, and then they just set it up there, and nobody's going to be looking at it. So it does involve that the, that the landlord, and more specifically, the, the on-site security, because a lot of these have that, that they are looking for that. But the biggest thing is, what am I looking for? And that's where the education comes in. Is is this an environment where an intense amount of violence takes place against the victims as well? Absolutely. So uh, think about, um, let's go with the street, the street level and the Internet level. And, and is, uh, there's many different ways that they can be recruited into uh, the, uh, uh, the lifestyle or as, as it's, a, um, it's termed in, in, into the game, the life in the game. Um, as to your question, it can start off absolutely violent. So one of the terms that is used for pimps, this is their terms, is a gorilla pimp. That can very easily tell you that, that the entire thing starts off with he drives up and actually does a kidnapping of the girl and takes him in and then it's forced. And usually those times it starts off with that violence. Uh, oftentimes there'll be uh, rape because it's, it's, it's sex upon demand whether you want to or not and then forced into the uh, street life or the internet. So is this a kidnapping of just an average everyday citizen that has a family and a job and? No, no, they're, 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 they're actually, uh, I hate to say it, but the impressive part about uh, a lot of the human traffickers is that they're very good at judging uh, people and human behavior. They are looking for those lost souls, those lost girls that they can peg that they are runaways because they've seen them at the bus stop, they see other dress. They're very good because this is their job. They're very good at identifying that. They're very good that if I grab her, no one's looking for no her. No one's going to look for her. And if they have, they report her missing upteen amount of times. Okay, so what is w- what can we do as a society to get with the individuals that are experiencing those circumstances right away before it happens? Because I'll share with you a statistic that really 
um, shattered me. Uh, we interviewed a while back. I want—I want to say maybe last year, around January, February. Uh, Kathy Tillotson. You can look on podcast for buildfutures.org and listen to that interview. And she um, is an organization that aids homeless uh, youth from the ages of 18 to about 23, where um, that that age range where they're pretty critical because there's not a lot of services and financial funding provided for housing for that age range. Um, plus they're, you know, diff- they're kind of like difficult teenagers, you know, nobody feels like they're responsible for helping them. And she said that, it, that I, I called her actually with, with this series in mind. And I said, Kathy, how long does it take? And she says within, within 48 to 72 hours, a homeless youth, we'll call them a youth, but they're in that 18 to 22 range will be trafficked within three days. Uh, she's absolutely right. Uh, uh she's way not. high on the age group. Bring it down to... 12, 13, 14 years old. I mean, I wish if it was that, because you figure they'd hopefully be a little bit smarter. They're already adults. It, it's, it's, it's too late by them. It, it's, it's, they're a lot younger. Well, what I meant was her organization provides housing for that age group because right. typically kids that are in the, in the 12 to 18 range are, are able to get services through foster care. Right. And, um, and those are... In Orange County, we have a lot of services for those individuals. Can and you weigh in on yeah, that? Yeah, actually, um, there's a study that just came out in San Diego, and their younger um, victims were 15, 16. In New York, they actually uh, did a study through Covenant House that reflects the same thing that Kathy's organization found. It's at that tipping point with aging out where they can't get services that they become very vulnerable to being recruited because this is one option. Um, the the um, y- there are those horrible younger younger stories, but um, more often they the adolescents reach a point when they are um, feeling like okay, I'm going to take some. Um, action on my own and I'm not going to take this abuse anymore. They come from a home situation or a placement situation that has involved abuse, often sexual abuse, and they run away without, because we've talked about it a little bit before, their brains aren't done and they have no options. And exactly what, what they do, Sergeant... They just don't think they do. Yeah, <laughs> and Sergeant Ravellis really um, nailed it because the pimps, the perpetrators... Um, are great observers of human behavior. They don't look for someone that's really tied in tightly to their um, their community. They look for the person lagging behind. The If they're looking for a girl who doesn't have the same um, wardrobe and would like to be part of the group, and they target that vulnerability, I need to belong. And a 14-year-old, 15-year-old will um, be exceptionally vulnerable to that but then when you compound that with the significant need and there isn't anybody to, there's no mom and dad to go to, um, that really puts them out there like Kathy talked about with homeless youth. Right, right. So if you're just tuning in, this is Real People OC, and I'm your host, Kimberly Martin. And I have um, with us Sergeant Juan Ravellis. He is with the Orange County Human Trafficking Task Force. And I also have with us Dr. Sandra Morgan. She is the executive director for... Um, for the Global Center for Women in Justice out of Vanguard University. And Sandra is helping me put together this task or this this month long uh, really 
in-depth look at human trafficking, in, especially in Orange County, but helping us to look for solutions and also see how we might help as, as a community. There is a number that um, that Sergeant Ravellis just gave me. It is the National Human Trafficking Resource Center. Would you say that would be the best place to call if you had a neighbor, or would you think the local PD would be the best place to call if you had a neighbor? I, I would suggest the local PD, but uh, if you're not getting a response from them, you, you report this to the National Human Trafficking Resource Center. Either way, it's good. I say local police department because that gets them going that the citizenry of that uh, uh, area is now cognizant of this problem and calling them and asking for their action. So that's that's what I like about calling the local police department because it gets them engaged on it. Okay. And I like the National Human Trafficking Resource Center hotline as well as, so I want to do both and, because it's very difficult to gather the data that we need to drive decision making um, from the local level. We don't share all the stats and things like that as easily. And the National Human Trafficking Resource Center um, aggregates all of the, the, data, the data, which mm -hmm. is really important in my world of academia. But for Sergeant Ravellis, call your local PD. Right, but I can see where an informed, concerned citizen might consider doing both, even yeah. though it's an extra step. That 800 number is actually an 888 number, 373-7888. Again, it's 888-373-7888. So... I hesitate, but I'm curious. Do, should I ask you where some of the locations are where a lot of, um, you say, human traffickers kind of spend their free time? Is there is there places that are of hotbed concern for citizens that we should know about, or is it really kind of everywhere? It's kind of everywhere. So if, if, if you say where the traffickers spend their free time, the ones that establish the residential brothels are not going to be anywhere near them. Once they're established, they set up a system, they wall themselves from it. Uh, you know, they'll have a fake person that uh, rented the place. They'll have somebody that just kind of runs it. And then the girls are, if the ones that set up like that are pretty much on autopilot. They know what their schedules are. They're going to go there, and they have a just reporting system. The ones on the street or the Internet, the ones on the street, they, start, they try to stay far away from the girl as possible. She has her directions. And he's usually off to the side when we find him. He's off to the side. And we, we continually see them on the phone. What we know what not they're doing is they're continually trying to recruit, recruit or find their next victim through social media. You name it, Facebook, Tag, Plenty of Fish, Kick. You name the social media, they're going to be using it. No different than as they're driving up and down the street to look for that girl that fits that profile that we're talking about. They develop their sense that on, as, they, as they surf the social media, you know, see, uh, they have the same thing that they're doing, except they're just using technology to do the same thing. And I would like to add that when I said that they're very good at judging human behavior, they are so good, and I think uh, Sandra and I have spoken about this, that when you look at, and this is perfect because we're at a university, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, they don't know that they're doing it, but they got it down pat. They've mastered it. They've mastered it. The way they drive up and... She's alone, she's cold, she's hungry, and they just happen to have, you know, that uh, burger and fries in their, in, in their car that they're willing to share with them. And also, I'll just give you a place to stay today because I know you're cold out here and it's raining. And mm -hmm. I just, I'm just a nice guy. And that's how it starts. And then it goes from there. 
I tell you, um, I actually have an article, and they have written about this, and they teach each other those. And there's an article. You can look it up, and I'll give you a link, Kimberly, for your podcast notes. Um, R.J. Martin wrote an article, How to Make the Most Money Using Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Wow. Okay, so I'm getting depressed again, and we have 15 more minutes of time. Help me understand what, like, we're listening to this, but why, like, are you experiencing red tape or something? Like, why wouldn't everybody just be behind you, supplying you with the funding we need to keep kids off the street? I'm always blown away when I talk to Kathy, how frustrated she is at getting resources. And I'm blown away by that. I don't understand it. Uh, Help me understand. I think we're doing a lot of things right, but what is it that we're missing the mark on? You, you know, both you both set up so brightly that yes, you're like, this like is a we big need money. Discussion. Yeah, yeah. This is a big thing. For investigation, if you look at that four P model of prevention, protection, prosecution, and partnership, we have directed significant resources towards prosecution, law enforcement. Um, we we don't have enough resources for protection. We do not have a dedicated human trafficking shelter in Orange County. Not one. Not one. And when you look at the column for prevention, um, as you can imagine, when we're talking about these issues with adolescents that are very vulnerable, adolescent mental health budgets have been cut over and over again, year after year. And so instead of um, throwing resources at prevention, which my grandma told me an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. We have to wait until afterwards to find resources for trauma um, treatment therapy. And we need to have adolescent mental health resources available in Orange County before these kids are victims. Okay. Okay. I said my speech. It's your turn, Sarge. Uh, You know, my grandma told me the same thing, except it sounded a little bit different in Spanish. Oh, so absolutely right and and the the difference now is that law enforcement you know i keep talking about finding these guys and prosecuting them but us as a task force as this multi-agency task force that is responding to it as a county problem we are involved in every aspect of the of what uh sandra just mentioned the education the prevention every aspect we're involved in it because we have to be in order to get that perspective on it to realize how important it is when we find them. And then we realize how important it is to what uh, the needs that this victim has. So much so that uh, even from the start, when I say victim-centered approach, what that actually means is as we walk up to them, as we're dealing with this, what used to be the prostitute, as we walk up, we start off with the mindset that she is a victim. She may change our mind later on, that she's actually by herself, she's an adult, she has no one out here and she chose to do this. But it starts off as a victim, so much so that's how she's treated, treated throughout the entire process that even our interview room, we call it a soft interview room because it's probably a little, just a little bit smaller than this room, but it looks like a living room. It's there's, got a nicer touch to it. There's <laughs> couches. Well, before we would interview them, go in our police interview room, by procedure, they sit by a table, you uncuff one hand, you can't cuff it to the table, and then we sit there as law enforcement and you try to say, I'm here to help you. <laughs> tell me who is trafficking you. And we would ask that about three times, they would not tell us, so our interview was done, we were happy that we did our job. Right. That's not the case anymore. We bring them in there, it mm-hmm. looks like a living room, there's blankets, there's what we realize, there's some throw uh, plush animals that they 
you know, just by observations that they really gravitate to them and they kind of hold them. And now we let them rest there uh, and don't start the interview till they feel that they've had their rest because remember, when we got them, they're at this high. By the time they get to the station, they drop real low. As we are transporting from one place to another, the simple question are as, when did you last eat and are you hungry? Because hmm. by far, they have not eaten until he says so. And he won't say so till they meet their quota. Hmm. So most of the time is that. Here's the next question that we ask them, simple ones. What is it that you want to eat? Why? Because they've never had that choice. Or very few times that they had that choice. And if they did, because they chose to go wherever they need to go, is uh, it was be for few and far between. So simple things like that, we realize Pretty that similar. it starts the conversation, and that's what I mean by the victim-centered approach, including our interview. Brings them back to their own humanity. Yes. So, okay, what do you say to people out there with daughters and children that they let go hang out at the mall? Well, you know what? Um, we keep talking that it's everywhere, but like many other things, we keep it in perspective. We keep talking about there's very little that is done, but again, in perspective. I can tell you because we do have the experience from going up and down the state and teaching this topic and knowing where other law enforcement other counties are at, Orange County is at the forefront of dealing with this issue. And when I say that, it's the entire community. Now, we're always, we won't rest on our laurels and we can always do better, and that's what our goal is. But I've worked in law enforcement for a very long time and done different types of assignments. I've never seen where that old adage where it talks about it takes a community. This is where I'm actually mm -hmm. seeing it. Every part of the Orange County community, from law enforcement, you know, medical, you, you name it, is involved in this. This is what helps. What we're doing right now is, is this awareness education. And then the most important one is create some vehicles for those people that want to take action. So... When you say it about parents that let their kids go to the mall, that's fine, continue. It's not, not like anything else. You've got to know your kid. If, when you say parents are involved, that is huge. You know when you say parents, the anti-drug? Parents, the anti-human trafficking solution. I say that because our anecdotal, non-scientific uh, evidence, when we ask these girls, where is dad? You get several different reactions. Upset, I don't want to talk about that SOB at all whatsoever because he's not around. Silence or tears. Bottom line, dad is not around. So you're saying that as a community we can really bone up on sh or shore up on our relationships with our kids by uh, helping that role between father-daughter or mother-son. Um, Sergeant Ravellas and I both participated yesterday in the Blue Ribbon Commission, Juvenile Justice Commission, um, CSEC hearings, commercial sexual exploitation of our children. And there was a theme that ran through all of the testimony at the hearings, relationship. Relationship is the key to prevention. It's the key to um, helping victims escape the life and stay out of it. It's the key to restoration because recidivism is huge in this we can rescue and then when there is no relationship there is no way back to a normal life or the kind of normal life you and I um, Kimberly would think of um, then they go back to where it was comfortable and they have replaced the dad the father with um, someone who wants to be called daddy 
and creates for himself the role of caretaker because we are hardwired for a caretaker. And it's like um, the sergeant said, he's got a hamburger, he's, he's in charge of where she's gonna sleep and be safe. And if you run away, are you gonna be sleep safer sleeping on the, on the uh, sidewalk in front of Target? Maybe not. So the, the issues are so complicated and it does, it takes a community that's willing to develop a relationship. It's, I mean, I'm, I'm so relieved to hear about the paradigm shift you described earlier in the interview, Sergeant Ravellis. It's, it's really interesting to me. Are you feeling like you're making a lot of progress or was it a little bit too little too late? What are your feelings on that? Uh, absolutely not. I mean, progress is continual and it's continuing forward. This county is, has responded, will continue to respond. I'm going to look. Just the establishment of the, of, 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 on the law enforcement part of the task for this is we're gonna we're going to um, attack this as a countywide problem. Here's the here's what's even better, and we put it out there, and, and the, our reputation is getting out there to the human traffickers. If in any way, in any shape, you touch Orange County in your process of trafficking someone, we will go find you. We will investigate the case, and we will go find you. And we don't just say that. We bring him down from everywhere in California they're at. The most recent one that he thought he got away, but we kept tabs on him, is uh, he is currently in jail in Florida waiting through the process, and we will bring him back to serve his time here in California. Tell me what further away you can get in, in the U.S. I'm waiting for the one that goes to Hawaii so I can go, yeah. bring, him back. <laughs> go bring him back. But I say that in, 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 uh, to state that we are making some great strides here in Orange County. It is a major problem, but we are heading in the right direction. And I think in Orange County, we would continue heading the right direction. And I have no problem. It sounds very conceited, but I have no problem saying because we can back it up that we are one of the model counties in the state as well as the nation. Because I've gone up and down the state and I've gone outside the state to see what we're doing. This collaboration between, because when People used to refer to as task forces. They always think of just law enforcement. When we refer to as a task force, the Owens County Task Force, I see law enforcement, DAs, victim service providers, educators. And then what covers us all and what gives us the old backing, the Owens County community, beginning with faith-based. Yeah. Unfortunately, they're the ones that are leading the charge Absolutely. when it comes down to this. I have to tell you, one of the reasons that I wanted Sergeant Ravellis to join us today is because we do have a great track record here. It isn't enough, but it is so much more that we feel really kind of good about that, and there's a lot of hope. Um, but a lot of people will say, well, you just rescue one, and, and then there's two more. And it becomes very depressing, and you can't sleep if you're listening to this at night. And so you asked me earlier about hope and, and how you keep on doing this. Yesterday, when um, Sergeant Ravellis presented at the hearings, he talked about reducing demand. When our law enforcement starts looking at prevention models, I jump up and down, and I would just like you to take two minutes, because I know we're at the end, and tell us how are we gonna reduce demand so that they're, you know, we're a destination county. Right, right. So we, who's, you know, who are the sex purchasers is the question we need to be asking. Good question. Are you asking me the question? Yes, I'm asking you, yeah. Um, 
So very quickly. They're, they're pasty white Midwestern people that the, haven't seen the well, sun. <laughs> the, uh, Sorry, I had to Orange say County <laughs> is a destination county. And what I mean right. by that, that 90% of the victims and traffickers that we went across are from outside the county. That means they're bringing them here. Why are they bringing them here? Because the demand is here. And the demand is here. They bring them here as well because the Orange County, and, and appropriately so, is, sees, is seen as an affluent county. That means to them more money. Their quota of the females that they bring in here goes up when they get to Orange County. And so, therefore, if we, in, our, in the national uh, 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 scope of human trafficking, how do we fit in that? We're the demand side in this county. So, therefore, we need to address those. And I can tell you that 2016 for the task force is going to be focused on that demand. When I say the sex purchaser, I mean men. When I say men, I mean the spectrum. We've done operations where it is that young kid, it is that young adult that you know. I quote. I, I, you I, mean I, that's purchasing sex. That's purchasing sex, and and, and I and I and I just because on the one of the very last ones, the one of the very first ones that you know is going to the undercover officer is this young kid that has his backpack, and I was joking that he was going to miss his uh, university class, and, and and within that group is that sixty-year-old businessman that has several thousand dollars in his pocket and he's still trying to negotiate a prize. So the sex purchaser, what is the profile? And it's this is very unfortunate to say, but it is reality. The profile is men. So therefore, we are going to, apart from the enforcement part, we are making a big push this year to start that education and that awareness to this population, the sex purchaser. You are bringing these girls to this county. No, it is not good. Do not pretend that they are there willingly, even if she's an adult. And do not pretend that that girl that you think you uh, talk to yourself into thinking she is 18. Because she's not. Because <laughs> she's not. And no, she is not doing this willingly. So that's part of the process. And we have to deal with it as a county that we have to address the demand side. So if this is going out there, realize for all those people out there, because it does run the spectrum, it does run all professions, all economic levels, that 2016 will be our... Uh, our year for trying to reduce demand here in Orange County. Taking a stand. Woohoo. Yeah. All right. Well, we just threw down on our time. We had an excellent hour of discussing this. I can't thank you enough for your contribution to today's conversation. Uh, thank you both so much for being here. And um, just say, you know, just say a quick, you know, final thought. <laughs> well, I appreciate the opportunity because the biggest thing that has gotten us to where we're at here in Orange County is the, the education awareness of the general population as to what the problem is now. It makes it easier for me as we go through and ask for assistance from the community. Very good. And Dr. Morgan, we get to see you next week as well, right? That's right. All right. Up next is Counterspin. And then after that, uh, Matt Kaplan brings you Planetary Radio. So uh, thank you so much for joining us each and every week here from 4 to 5. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Bye for now. Looking to give back? Donate Games can help. Send in your used video games to the Donate Games online store, where games are resold to help fund research for orphan diseases afflicting children around the world. Donate Games, save lives. It's that easy. To play your part, visit www.donategames.org. The Psychology Student Association is an organization dedicated to its members. Our goal at the Psychology Student Association is to serve as a resource for members to network, make new friends, and explore their passion for psychology. We seek to help undergraduate students learn about grad school, careers, and research opportunities related to psychology.
If you're a psych major, minor, or just interested in learning more about psychology, check out our website at clubs.uci.edu slash psychsa for more details on meeting times and upcoming events. Again, that's clubs.uci.edu slash p-s-y-c-h-s-a. Mom, Dad, I need to talk to you. I'm scared. I don't think I can go back to school tomorrow. There's a guy and some of his friends who are after me. They hate my clothes, the way I talk, everything about me. Mom, Dad, did you hear me? I'm scared. Listen to what they have to say. Take a stand. Lend a hand. Stop bullying now. For more information, visit stopbullyingnow.hrsa.gov. And that was the real people of the OC with a very important topic. I, um, I'm, I'm really um, pleased that Kimberly was able to bring uh, those uh, good people who are fighting the good fight uh, into the radio station. I hope you enjoyed it as well. I don't know if enjoy is the right word, but it is good to know that there are people who are uh, working on this very, very serious uh, problem. And as somebody with uh, a couple of uh, daughters, <laughs> it uh, maybe it strikes me... Uh, strikes home a little bit more with me than it does with uh, with some people. But uh, I'll tell you, it's uh, it could not be more important, could it? Anyway, we will go on now to Counterspin. And then at uh, 5.30, it'll be Planetary Radio here on KUCI in Irvine. Then lots and lots and lots of music beginning at 6 p.m. this evening. The opinions expressed on Counterspin do not necessarily reflect those of KUCI, UC Irvine, or the Regents of the University of California. Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines of the mainstream news. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, Barack Obama described beheadings by the extremist group ISIS as an assault on all humanity. But when U.S. ally Saudi Arabia executed 47 people on January 2nd, many by beheading, the administration expressed concern and urged restraint. Media don't make it easy to make sense of U.S. policy in the Gulf region. We'll get some context from Toby Craig-Jones, associate professor of history at Rutgers University and author of Desert Kingdom, How Oil and Water Forged Modern Saudi Arabia. Also on the show, for U.S. media, Haiti is just, as CBS News put it recently, a shamble made worse by a corrupt government. You'd hardly guess what role the international community, and in particular the U.S., have had in creating the country's current situation, including the confusion and mistrust about the ongoing presidential election. We'll hear from Jake Johnston on that. He's a research associate at the Center for Economic and Policy Research and lead author for the Center's Haiti Relief and Reconstruction Watch. All of that's coming up, but first a quick look back at recent press. Whatever one may think about the armed anti-government militias who occupied a federal building in Oregon on January 2nd, it's hard to deny that they benefited, especially initially, from a different media approach than other groups would almost certainly receive. 
The Malheur National Wildlife Refuge was not occupied when Eamon and Ryan Bundy and their cohorts moved in, but the group made it clear they were willing to use violence and they hoped to inspire a larger anti-government uprising. They're the sons of right-wing extremist Cliven Bundy, who led a similar standoff in 2014 in which armed militias occupied federal land, pointed guns at law enforcement, and got fairly gracious media coverage until he started talking about things he knew about the Negro. Nevertheless, as Ben Norton noted for FAIR.org, media reports like that from the Associated Press spoke of a peaceful protest not just not making clear that the militants were armed, but implying that they were not, telling readers that, quote, some local residents feared that the Saturday rally would involve more than speeches, flags, and marching. But the only real additions to that list seem to be songs, flowers, and pennies, close quote. Protesters evidently threw pennies at courthouse doors to signify civilians buying back their government. It doesn't imply a call for a violent police crackdown in Oregon to simply acknowledge that this treatment differs meaningfully from coverage of, for example, Black Lives Matter activists, who are often portrayed by media as dangerous even when they are peaceful, and whose movement has led media to leap on sketchy claims like that of an anarchist plot to ambush cops on Halloween, or a teen purge designed to terrorize citizens of Baltimore, or a baseless claim of increased crime as a result. Nor does it seem too much to suggest that laughing it off might not be the most appropriate response to armed people organized around a far-right ideology who are successfully using threats of violence to advance their political agenda. The Washington Post's Catherine Rampell used a December 24th column to dismiss as benighted college students protesting racism and sexism on campus. If students want to feel like victims, Rampell advised, there are very real underappreciated ways they're being economically victimized. What are the things those silly kids really ought to be upset about? Well, the headline tips you off. College